0: Thus have I heard. During the time of the Buddha, a boy was born to a counselor to King Pasanadi of Kosla, the Brahman Bhagavad Gaga and his wife Mantani. In casting his son's horoscope, as was traditional in those times, the Brahman was shocked to learn that his son had been born under the robber constellation, which disposed him to a life of crime. In hopes that they could counter this disposition, his parents named him Ahimsaka, meaning harmless, and set out to raise him with strong values and spiritual beliefs. And indeed, as he grew up, he was well-behaved and intelligent. He was also physically strong and powerful. When he came of age, his father sent Ahimsaka to study at Takasila, the greatest university in ancient India. There he was placed with the foremost teacher. Now in those times, a teacher was both an educator and a spiritual guide, as well as a mentor. A master took on only a select group of young men, for it was only men who received this privilege. And those students lived with the master and his family in a large compound ahimsaka was welcomed into the family and soon became a favorite the master's children loved him for his playfulness and his wife appreciated his helpfulness soon ahimsaka proved himself as a student as well he excelled at both the academic and spiritual studies and became the master's favorite Ahimsa, while well, he missed his parents and lived happily in his new home, was loved and respected by all. Or almost all. For although Ahimsa excelled at his studies and charmed the family, his fellow students resented his rise. Why was this newcomer getting all the attention they asked each other? What made him so special? Maybe he deserved to be brought down a notch or two. And so they began to think about ways to bring Ahimzika's downfall. Then one day when they saw Ahimzika helping the master's wife with the chores, it came to them. This wife was much younger than the aging master who had lost his first wife years before, and the master was not unaware that he didn't deserve such a beauty and knew that she had married him because of the comfort and protection he could provide. So he was jealous of any young men to whom she gave attention. But not Ahimsika, No, Ahimsika, he knew, was a good young man, devoted to the precepts and to his studies. But one day, he received an anonymous letter telling him to watch Ahimsika and his wife. At first, he dismissed it. It couldn't be. Not a hymnsukkah. Then he began to watch them, always together, always laughing. Could it be? No, not a hymnsukkah. But one day after he returned from a trip, there was another note, this time giving dates and times. Now the seeds of doubt grew and grew, until finally he became convinced it was true. Now, what to do? The master's suspicion now became an obsession, and his obsession led to planning revenge on Ahimsa. How could he have betrayed him, his favorite student making him a cuckold right in front of his eyes? What punishment could he inflict on this traitor, this falsely named harmless one? After many days of reflection, the master decided on his course of action. Now Ahimshake had almost completed his studies and was preparing to return home. His master called him to a meeting wherein he told him that he must complete one final task. It is your duty, he said to Ahimsaka, to give a gift of honor to your teacher before you leave. Certainly, master, said Ahimsaka. What shall I give? You must bring me a thousand human little fingers of the right hand. Master, how can I do that? My family is never engaged in violence. They are harmless people. If you do not honor your teacher, said the master, your training will bear no fruit. Though continued to argue, eventually he acceded to his teacher's demand. He went to his quarters, gathered his belongings, and set off. We'll never know what was in the mind of Ahimsa at this time. Was he horrified? Or perhaps the underlying power of the robber's constellation had been aroused, perhaps some primal bloodlust had been awakened. Certainly we know that he was devoted to his guru, perhaps too devoted. Whatever his feelings, we know that he gathered a set of weapons, including a broadsword, and set off for the Jalini forest in his home country of Kosala. There he lived on a high cliff where he could observe the road below when he saw travellers coming he would pounce on them slay them and cut off a finger these he strung as a garland around his neck and so with time became known as anguli mala finger garland ahimsaka was gone buried beneath the murderous impulse which now overtook him day after day week after week he chased and killed anyone who dared enter the Jellini forest. Living rough, his hair and beard grew long, and he lived off whatever he could kill or gather in the forest. Over time, he came more, became more like one of the wild animals of Jelini, powerful, ruthless, and deadly, and less like the humans he killed. By now, people had ceased to even enter the forest, so Angulimala started to attack the surrounding villages, Unstoppable in his strength, strength and energy, soon the people clamored for King Pasnadi to capture and put the murderer to death. Although no one knew the true identity of Angulimala, his mother, Montani, intuitively sensed that it was her son, Ahimsika, who had never returned from his studies at Takasila. She shared this belief with her husband. He told her, if that was so, then he had no use for such a son. Let the king's men kill him. But a mother cannot let go so easily. So she set out to find him, to convince him to give up his evil ways and to come home before he was captured by the king's men. By now, Angulimala had accumulated 999 fingers needing just one more to satisfy his teacher. At this time, the Buddha, now in his 20th year of teaching, surveying the world with great compassion, became aware of Angulimala. He realized, in fact, that Montani was approaching the Jalini forest and that she was about to become Angulimala's 1,000th victim. Now, matricide, is one of the heinous crimes that produce, irreversibly, an immediate rebirth in hell. The Buddha also knew that Angulimala's karma, though so much harmed by his murderous ways, was ripe for awakening because of his past spiritual work. So he set out to intervene. As he approached the forest, he was warned off by the shepherds and farmers he passed, don't go near Jalini, monk for there is a killer there who will slice off your fingers as easily as cutting bread. But the Buddha ignored them. From his lookout, Angulimala saw his mother approaching, and though some part of him recognized her, his urge to complete his task and perhaps his own violent nature swept him forward. But then he saw the Buddha, perhaps an even easier target, a peaceful monk and he veered off to chase him. With his speed and power, he knew the recluse would be no match for him. And yet, when he approached the Buddha, he found that even though the monk was walking at a normal pace, no matter how fast he ran, he couldn't catch him. Finally, frustrated at this, Angulimala called out, Stop, monk! The, buna, the Buddha turned slowly to Angulimala and said, I have stopped, Angulimala. Now you must stop. Struck by the serenity and fearlessness of this simple monk in the face of a murderer, swinging a broadsword, Angulimala was suddenly curious. How is it that you have stopped and I have not, he asked. Angulimala, I have stopped forever. I abstain from violence toward living beings but you have no restraint toward things that breathe. So that is why I have stopped and you have not. Was it these words or something else that prompted Angulimala to throw off his weapons and bow to the Blessed One? Was it the power of the Buddha's presence or Angulimala's past karma that him allowed him to pull back from the brink of hell to turn himself over to the Buddha to ask for the going forth, to become a follower of the Buddha. We'll never know the answer to that, but indeed, this is what happened. He fell to the ground and prayed to be admitted to the monastic Sangha. Come, Bhikkhu, spoke the Buddha, and Agulimala was thus, thus ordained as a monk. Shaving his head and finding rag robes to wear, he traveled with the Buddha as his attendant to Savati, Chetis Grove, and not to Pinticus Park. By this time, crowds of people, not knowing that Angulimala had been subdued, gathered at King Pasanati's palace, crying for him to capture the killer. The king then gathered 500 men and prepared to hunt him down, but before venturing out, he stopped to pay homage to the Buddha. The Buddha asked why he had gathered his army. Was he being attacked by King Bimbasara of Magadha or someone else? No, Pasanadi told him. He was setting out to capture the murderous Angulimala. Great king, said the Buddha, suppose you were to see that Angulimala had shaved off his hair and beard, put on the yellow robe, and gone forth from the home life into homelessness, that he was abstaining from killing living beings, from taking what is not given, and from false speech. If you were to see him thus, how would you treat him? Venerable sir, said King Pasanati, we would pay homage to him. We would invite him to accept robes, alms food, a resting place, or medicinal requisites. But, venerable sir, he is an immoral man, one of evil character. How could he ever have such virtue and restraint? At that moment, Angulimala was sitting near the Buddha, who pointed him out and said, Great king, this is Angulimala. The king drew back in terror, looking first at Angulimala, then at the Buddha, asking with his eyes for reassurance. Do not be afraid, great king, said the Buddha, There is nothing to fear from him. Now the king stepped closer. Are you really Angulimala, he asked. Yes, great king. Of what family is your father and mother? My father is Gaga, my mother, Mantani. Amazed that his counselor's son was the famous serial killer, King Pasnati offered him robes and requisites but Angulimala had taken a vow to wear only rags and eat only alms food. King Pasanati turned to the Buddha and said, It is wonderful, Venerable Sir, how the Blessed One tames the untamed, brings peace to the unpeaceful, and leads to Nibbana, those who have not attained Nibbana. We could not tame him with force and weapons, yet you have tamed him without force or weapons. And now, Venerable Sir, We depart. We are busy and have much to do. Now is the time, great king, to do as you think fit. Now, although King Pasanati was apparently ready to forgive Angulimala, those in the villages and towns that had lost loved ones to his evil deeds were not. And so, as Angulimala tried to start a new life as a humble and peaceful monk, he found himself an outcast, and worse, a victim of retribution. One day on alms round, he was attacked by villagers who threw rocks and jagged pieces of broken pots. And with blood running from his cut head, his pole bowl broken, and his outer robe torn, he went to the Buddha. When he saw him coming, the Blessed One called out, Bear it, Brahman, bear it. You are experiencing here and now the result of deeds because of which you might have been tortured in hell for many years, for many hundreds of years, for many thousands of years. So now Angulimala set himself to the great work of awakening and in a short time bore the fruits of the holy life, experiencing the bliss of deliverance. And Angulimala became one of the Arhant's. Soon after this, once more on alms round, Angulimala saw a woman giving birth to a deformed child. He thought, how beings are afflicted. How beings are afflicted. When he returned to the Buddha, he asked what he could do to help this poor woman and her child. And the Buddha told him, go back into Savati and say to that woman, sister, sister, Since I was born, I do not recall that I ever intentionally deprived a living being of life. By this truth, may you be well, and may your infant be well. Venerable sir, said Angulimala, wouldn't I be telling a deliberate lie? For I have intentionally deprived many living beings of life. Then go back to Savati and say to that woman, Sister, since I was born into the noble birth, I do not recall that I have ever intentionally deprived a living being of life. By this truth, may you be well, and may your infant be well. Angulimala did as the Buddha instructed, and the woman and infant were healed. His words are used today as a healing chant for pregnant women. And so Angulimala, the murderer, became the protector of women and children. This is one of my favorite suttas. I've embellished it a little bit. Only, actually, the only part, most of this, as far as we know, whether Angulimala's historical character or not, he's, the way he's recorded, it seems that there was certainly someone like him. And Bhikkhu Bodhi even has a whole chapter. In his book on the great masters, actually I have here, I'm going to read a little bit of it, The Great Disciples of the Buddha, a chapter devoted to him. The one thing that I tweaked for narrative purposes, though, is that it says that the, the, what the students of the, his master said was not that he was having an affair with the master's wife, but that he was trying to usurp the master's position uh, as his power, but I thought I always think that adultery is, you know, a, a better motivation. It's just it's a classic motivation. So, but the story, you know, it's one that it's so interesting. It, it clearly it's the first way that it's used as a teaching tool is pretty obvious. Uh, and that is the possibility of redemption and the possibility that someone could really do a lot of bad stuff and still has the potential for redemption and in fact enlightenment according to this. And, and so it's often kind of, uh, given as a teaching for people who feel maybe they're not worthy of awakening or, of, you know, that they, sh- you know, they f- feel they're carrying too great a burden of guilt in their lives. Um, and, you know, so in the in the recovery world where I, I do a lot of my teaching with people in recovery, as I said, um, this is uh, a popular a popular one, a popular story. Um, so, so a couple. I want to draw from a couple other traditional teachings to talk about this, uh, as well as asking some other questions. In the um, in the Anguttara Nikaya, the there is a, a sutta where we get, we get a direct kind of teaching from the Buddha about his attitude about um, about forgiveness and, and about um, if you do something wrong, how you can uh, make amends for that. And actually, amends is a word that, you know, if you know the 12 steps, shows up in the 12 steps. And, and for years, I was trying to find that word in the suttas, and it was only when I came upon this sutta in the Anguttara Nikaya that I found the actual word amends. And what this is a much simpler story, sort of an odd one, in which Saraputta, one of the Buddha's uh, chief disciples, uh, goes off. He, he kind of asks the Buddha if he can go off to... Uh, uh, to travel. He's going to, as he says, a tour of the countryside, which is not, you know, on vacation. Uh, it's, you know, you walk around and give teachings and uh, live off the, sort of from the villagers. And right after he leaves, a certain monk uh, comes, uh, spreads the word that Saraputta struck him Before he left. Now, Sariputta would never do that. So, and the fact that this monk is identified in the suttas only as a certain monk means that they didn't want to name him in the suttas and and sort of shame him. So, the Buddha calls Sariputta back and Sariputta gives a lengthy discourse about all the reasons why he could never have done that. It's called The Lion's Roar. And as you're reading it, you know, you, you get the sense of this Young monk kind of shrinking down with Saraputa just going after him. But at the end of it uh, the the monk the the certain monk says uh, to the Buddha, Bhante, I have committed a transgression in that I so foolishly, stupidly and unskillfully slandered the venerable Saraputa on grounds that are untrue, baseless and false. Bhante, may the blessed one accept my transgression, seen as a transgression for the sake of future restraint. In other words, I'm sorry. They they go on and on a lot of times in the suttas. That they weren't in as much of a hurry as we are these days. So the Buddhist re- repeats all the same things back to him. Surely, Bhikkhu, you have committed a transgression in that you so foolishly, stupidly, and unskillfully slandered the venerable Sariputta on grounds that are untrue, baseless, and false. I mean, the redundancy is just... It's funny to me. But since you see your transgression as a transgression and make amends for it in accordance with the Dhamma, we accept it. For it is growth in the noble one's discipline that one sees one's transgressions, one's transgressions as a transgression, making amends for it in accordance with the Dhamma and undertakes future restraint. So, this is like a really critical thing that the Buddha is saying, if you admit you are wrong and recommit to living differently, then we, t- we totally accept that. And, and that's a beautiful thing to me in the Buddha's teachings. It's not like, oh, you've got to wear this sort of scarlet letter for the rest of your life because you did something. It's like, no, you've, you've admitted your mistake. And the end of this is also one of my favorites. The Blessed One then addressed the Venerable Sariputta. Sariputta, pardon this hollow man before his head splits into seven pieces right there. I will pardon this Venerable One, Bhante if this Venerable One says to me, and let the Venerable One pardon me. So, you know, it's a much simpler story than Angulimala, but but making this point that again, that forgiveness is is um, you know available. And the teachings in that, that kind of direct way that uh, it's just that honesty, just that integrity, which is part of the, the monastic code, too, that the, the monks, in the, at least in the Theravada tradition, I don't know, Mahayana, you, in, the, in the monthly basis, they, make, they go through their precepts, and then they confess any bro- precepts that they've broken for the month. You guys do that? Because you don't break any precepts, so... Don't say anything. So a few a few other things that that I think I'm curious about in this sutta, um, you know, how are we to take this idea of a the robber constellation? You know, nowadays, you know, we kind of other. I mean, there are people who believe in astrology, but for a lot of scientifically minded people, it's kind of like, you know we kind of question that like was this kind of fate um you know was this was just just a way of explaining away people's tendencies the and i suppose i i don't know anything about indian astrology but does anybody here know about that cuz i know they have a different form of astrology and that and that it's very important i i think that even today people have their their chart done and that's part of the way that they match up couples and stuff. I don't know. Anyway, I'll, I'll move on from that one. <laughs> this is just like my reflections on the sutta, okay? And I'll be, I'll be looking forward to hearing your thoughts on it too. So, as I kind of mentioned in my little, uh, story of this, uh, there's this question, okay, you know, what, why does Angulimala go wrong? Like, if you don't believe it's like his fate, one of the things that we can see is, as I implied, that maybe he trusted his teacher too much, which is a pretty good lesson to get, right? We've seen, certainly in contemporary times, enough cases in which teachers abuse the trust of their students. So that, that brought to mind for me what's known as the Kalama Sutta, Which is the sutta where the Buddha is kind of challenged by, uh, this clan, the Kalamas, uh, to sort of tell him why they, they ask him why they should believe him or why they should believe anybody because they say, let me read this, read this from the sutta. He says, it says, uh, Bhante, there are some ascetics and Brahmins who come to Kesaputta. This is their town. So the ascetics and Brahmins just means they're like spiritual teachers who come. They explain and elucidate their own doctrines, but disparage, denigrate, deride, and denounce the doctrines of others. Sound familiar? You know, my teaching is the right one. Those other people are wrong. Very typical. They say, we are perplexed and in doubt as to which of these good ascetics speak truth and which speak falsehood. And I, I love the, the Buddha's response is, it is fitting for you to be perplexed, columnist, fitting for you to be da- in doubt. Doubt has arisen in you about a perplexing matter. So then he goes through this teaching, he says, do not go by oral tradition. And of course, in those days, most of the spiritual teachings were oral. By lineage of teaching. So my teacher was this master and that, their master, and sort of the lineage, you know, that gives you authority. He's like, don't go by that. By hearsay, well, that's what everybody says. By a collection of scriptures, because just because it's written down doesn't mean it's true. See the Internet. But then it gets really interesting. By logical reasoning, by inferential reasoning, by reasoned cogitation. Now, these are things that in our culture, it's like, well, logic is sort of the defining thing. It has to be logical. Buddha says, no, like that's actually not really proof either. And all you have to do is follow uh, the, you know, a legal battle, which is supposed to be based purely on logic. You know. And we have the Supreme Court we were supposed to be supremely logical and there's nine of them and five vote one way and four vote another way and it's like well, what's the what's logic so he's kind of showing that logic can be you know pointing out that logic can be manipulated too and as we know our own bias really influences our logic even though i'm right about most things but you know so don't uh, 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 Don't believe it because it's logical or by inferential reasoning, by reasoned cogitation, uh, by the acceptance of a view after pondering it just because you thought about it, by the seeming competence of the speaker, you know. Wow, that, you know, that charisma that sometimes people just, they're so convincing. Gotta be true. Or because you think the ascetic is our guru, like that's my teacher, so I have to believe it. But when, columnist, you know for yourself these things are unwholesome these things are blameworthy these things are censored by the wise these things if accepted and undertaken lead to harm and suffering then you should abandon them so if they if they lead to harm if they are if they're unwholesome blameworthy you should abandon them you shouldn't follow them and then he says just the opposite uh, about positive he says but when you know for yourselves these things are wholesome These things are blameless. These things are praised by the wise. These things, if accepted and undertaken, lead to welfare and happiness. Then you should live in accordance with them. And then he, uh, this is particularly uh, relevant to uh, Angulimala, he says, Kalam is a person who is full of hate, overcome by hatred, with a mind obsessed by it, destroys life, takes what is not given, transgresses with another's wife, and speaks falsehood, and he encourages others to do likewise. Will that lead to his harm and suffering for a long time? Yes, Bonte, they all say. So it's just, you know, this idea that rather than, oh, my teacher said I should cut off a thousand fingers, and he's my teacher, and I believe him because he's my teacher. Rather, you kind of ask yourself, well, is this going to harm things? You know, this is fundamentally immoral. Apparently, Angulimala was not exposed to the Kalama Sutta before he got involved in those activities. So a couple other things just I want to comment on, uh, because I... Again, I, I think there's a lot in this sutta, as I say. I mean, there's sort of the obvious redemption story. But, um, like, again, in our culture, King pasnadi's response is kind of incredible. I I That's one of the things that really stands out for me about the sutta. That here's this guy who's, like, known to have killed all these people, and the king, who's, like, powerful enough to just have him taken away, you know? He, tr- he believes in the Buddha so much. He trusts the Buddha so much that he bows, to, you know, he offers to take care of Angulimala. You know, that's, for, I, you know, we have the idea of a sanctuary, you know, that someone can, you know, maybe get protection in a, in a church or, but, but the idea that, uh, just because this person has Become a monk. That, that's the level of respect that, uh, King Pasanati has. And, and I've heard stories like this, contemporary stories, uh, that there are things like this still happen in Thailand somewhat, although, uh, I also understand that Ajahn Chah, who is Jack Cornfield's uh, teacher, the famous Thai forest monk, sort of wouldn't allow this. Because it's apparently like some people would kind of, when they're trying to get away from uh, the cops in Thailand, like, go to the monastery, quick, ordain! You know, so, uh, I mean, we have to, you know, a certain amount of, uh, when you get into the suttas, when you really get into the traditional early Buddhist teachings, there's a lot of stuff that's not entirely, you know, believable, at least scientifically believable. For instance, the fact that the Buddha, and we, this is not the only time this happens, the Buddha is said to have had this sort of capacity with his mind to look out and see who needs his help today. It's kind of his, you know, where can I teach today where people, and that he, you know, it's kind of brushed over in the sutta that he just he knows that Angolimala, you know, he knows his karma, and he knows that he's gonna kill his mother, and he knows that he's ripe to, for awakening. All of that is, that's a lot to, to, um, take in. Um, but, but that's how the Buddha is viewed, and I don't, one thing I, I don't, uh, really dismiss anything anymore that I read in the suttas, even if it doesn't make sense to me, even if it's not logical. <laughs> uh, but I don't, I also don't like necessarily believe it, or maybe I'd be wearing robes too, you know, if I were fully bought in. I know we could talk about that later. I want to find out how bought in you are. Um, but I, because, I mean, there's a couple things going on, right? You've got this, Oral tradition that was passed down and that was had a certain, you know, it comes out of a time when people's understanding of consciousness uh, is different, you know, just their whole view of life and and uh, how things work. You know, there's not this sort of scientific method. Uh, so, so maybe they just this is just like how they tell the story, you know. On the other hand, I don't know. You know, the Buddha was pretty amazing. It seems. You know, I I don't. I'm not willing to say the Buddha couldn't do that. You know, uh, that he that he didn't have this capacity. Because I don't. You know, one of the mistakes I think we make is to think that well, if you know my mind isn't capable of that, so then no mind is capable of that. It's like well, you know. I can't run, you know, a hundred yard dash in ten seconds either. But that doesn't mean nobody else can do it. Um, so I, I try to keep my mind open, even though I kind of, I probably lean towards the it's it's magical, uh, you know, coming more out of a mythical culture. Um, but even the way you know the the Angulimala kind of gets enlightened right away too is, uh, but. But again, I mean, that's not as unbelievable because the, it's really, it's clear that, that people, you know, their potential for spiritual awakening, uh, is kind of unknowable and can happen very fast. I mean, I think Eckhart Tolle's story is a really good one for that. If you've read that, you know, how he was in this midst of this deep depression and apparently he had done a lot of spiritual work, but, Sort of in the midst of this depression, asked himself, or found himself saying to himself, I hate myself, something like that. And then, then suddenly asking this question, like, who hates whom? And this kind of breakthrough kind of happened when he realized, like, wait, consciousness, self, this is all a construct. I don't quite know what happened, or maybe I'd be there with him, but, but, um, But it was kind of sudden, you know, and it came out of a dark place. And it's not, and it's not unusual that people have an awakening out of a very dark place. Um, that kind of, in fact, that again kind of is how, what happens to a lot of addicts and alcoholics, you know, it's in their darkest moment that they kind of wake up and realize where they are, where they've been. Um, so, finally, the, the story of the mother giving birth. And the deformed child. Um, you know, there's a obviously like a beautiful closure that that brings to Angulimala's story. And, that, and that's why... And that part of the story isn't always included when people tell you the story of Angulimala because, again, they kind of sort of emphasize more like he was a killer and then the Buddha came along and he became enlightened. So that was the redemption part. But to me, his greatest redemption is the fact... That he's actually remembered today as the, this healer and that there's this chant that, that at least Theravadan monks do for pregnant women, you know. And that, you know, that, that idea that here's the guy who was this killer has now become this, the protector. That's, that I, I think that's the sweetest part of the story. Um, Bhikkhu Bodhi, uh, talks about this and says that um, the Buddha mostly avoided doing miracles. Uh, but that... Um, and the commentaries, which were these later things, came, uh, you know, uh, explanations or discussions of the sutras that came later, say, well, this wasn't quite a, a miracle. It was what they called an act of truth. But they say, for whatever we call it, you know, they say that the Buddha did it, um, out of an, as an act of compassion for him, Gulimala, because he couldn't get any food. Nobody would feed him. And, and finally when, when people saw, oh, he's, he's actually, wow, he, he helped this woman, you know, they, they started to care about him. Um, So, uh, an amazing story, you know, a, a beautiful story. I just thought I would have some fun with that tonight. would so, love to hear any thoughts or questions or reflections anybody has. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Um, I'm I'm intrigued as you were by the uh, the connection of astrology to fate and destiny, Mm -hmm. and how we are more logical and scientific as a whole. But a lot of us do kind of subscribe here and there to astrology. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering how that maybe reflects on um, our own, like how he was, you know, ended up being a killer and did those things, and then transformed himself completely and became a protector. So those are all metaphors, I think, for what we can do and how we can transform ourselves. So it kind of poses the question that I I kind of go back, I'm a Cancer son, and Leo Moon, and the Leo Moon decided to talk out loud in front of a whole group of people, uh-huh. and the Cancer son is like, why are you Your talking? Your stomach is churning. Yeah, yeah <laughs> like, why are you talking? But um, the but Leo Moon is always putting me out there. So So I say that almost religiously, but I don't, like you, I don't fully believe yeah. it. So I guess the question is, if there is kind of a, fallacy to the you know ultimate truth of astrology how is it we just magnetize back there and go back there and does that make sense
0: like we yeah i'm I'm not i'm not sure i can speak to that as any kind of an expert i mean i i you know um
1: Weird question, difficult well,
0: uh, question. <laughs> not one I ordinarily get in Dharma circles, but um, you know, I, I was very into astrology uh, back in the '70s. Yeah. I had my chart done several times, like a computerized version and various things. And at one time, an astrologer told me I was going to be a writer. And I was mm-hmm. a musician at that time, and I was like, "Oh yeah, I write songs already." She was like, "No, you're going to be a writer." Like, okay, fine. And now, you know, I've published five books, so. That's fantastic. But, you know, <laughs> I don't, you know, what I think is that if astrology has any value, it's kind of pointing out these potentials. Mm. But it's not, it's not fate, it's not fate. Just as it really wasn't fate for Angolimala. You know, it's setting up these pot. it's kind of pointing out these potentials because we all have kind of personalities, we have a range of potentials that can manifest in positive and negative ways. Like, for instance, you know, I was an alcoholic, so I was very habitual and kind of an addict, but I'm kind of also addicted to meditating, you know what I mean? Like, so you can apply, you can have a different qu- a quality, like if you're like a really critical person, you can be somebody who's really annoying, because you're criticizing all the time, or you can be somebody who's very thoughtful because you like see through like misguided mm. ideas, so it's all about it, it, that's what I see Those as sort potential. of the value of looking at something, framing yourself in that way and these days it seems like it's um, the uh, what's the thing that people do now that's the one <laughs> and because I like came to that too late, I was like, oh, I'm not signing up for another one. You know, I'll just take the Meyer Briggs test and, you know, thank you. Thank you.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: I would be very interested in hearing you talk a little bit more about what you just um, mentioned in passing about the um, connections or differences between being an addict or an alcoholic and being addicted to meditation i mean for instance the Buddha said at some point uh okay so sensual pleasures are yeah are you know i I get that but i've got a better way you know pursue the first jhana you know a deep meditative state and then uh, but you know there's something better than that yeah go for the second jhana and he kept keeps working up and so he really says you know be really um into pleasure in a sense Um. And so I'd be interested in you hearing, hearing you talk about, you know, (laughs) are you really addicted to meditation or is it different?
0: I'm not. I I define addiction as one of the, one of the elements of my definition of addiction besides the, you know, obsessive and habitual aspect of it is that it has to do, be harmful. I don't think so. I, I jokingly say that. But I just mean that those sort of same personality traits, uh, habitual traits, can can be manifest in positive ways. Right. So no, I I don't. I think it's possible that if you are using addiction to avoid, I mean, using meditation to avoid life, you know, then maybe it's a problem, right? Or if it's like we need to talk, and you're like, no, I'm. I need to go meditate. You know, that's. You know, not so healthy. I mean, I, I don't know what I would call an addiction, but it's misusing it. You know, using it as an escape. And people do that, right? Spiritual bypass is the t- typical term for that, right? Using spiritual uh, practices to avoid sort of facing life.
2: Well, so let me follow on with a little, with that sure. just a little bit. Um, one of the common teachings that I've heard is, you know, when you get uh, you know when PT arises, when some rapture happens, oh. or when Sukha arises. You know this really pleasantness. Don't get attached to it. Mm-hmm. But the Buddha said pursue it was right. was the word that Bikkhuda uses right. in that context, I believe. And certainly there are folks like Lee Brasington and um, uh, Shyela Catherine, mm-hmm. uh, maybe Richard Shank- Shankman to a lesser extent, and you know even Jack Cornfield and Richards. Book, yeah. really kind of talk about uh you know going for that kind of stuff mm-hmm. i asked shyla one time when she was here i said so how come people sometimes have this really intense wow experience what earlier in their meditation careers and then it doesn't come back again for a long time and they keep saying oh i've been told don't pers- don't get attached mm-hmm. yeah, to this yeah. and Shiloh said well that's because they haven't been trained properly yeah. um, uh, and uh, so I'm kind of curious about the difference between attachment or pursuing, or addiction, right. and
0: well, it's a it's a key question, and it's the difference between tanha and chanda. And in, in tanha is thirst, and it's the cause of suffering, and du, it's the cause of dukkha in the, in the Four Noble Truths. Chanda is the wish for spiritual development basically the wish to be to be generous you know the wish to help people you know the now even the wish to help people can become a problem that's why we have codependence Anonymous. you know but so it what it comes down to is our own capacity our own mindfulness of our own of the intention behind our actions and to and the way you know that more than anything is how does it feel you know if you're trying to get into the jhanas and it's creating this agitation and frustration and you're on a retreat and the retreat sucks because you're not in the jhanas, then you're, you know, your intention is off. You know, if you're just sitting and you're sort of welcoming it and, you know, I mean, I've sat quite a bit with Lee. So, uh, you know, with Lee Brasington, he mentioned a teacher who works, with, has a particular form of jhana practice that he learned from Kama. Buddhist nun. And, you know, he makes that point that if you come on the retreat with planning to get into the jhanas, that's almost a guarantee that you won't. That, that the jhanas arise naturally out of, out of meditation practice. They, they don't come out of striving for the jhanas. And, and that, yeah, there are certain signposts that you can cultivate, as Shiloh Catherine said. You know, if that energy starts to arise, there are ways to work with it. But there's a really quick mindfulness bell that tells you if you're getting attached or not. You fall out of the jhanas. That's how you know you weren't, that you were striving. And so this is one of the really subtle aspects of meditation practice that it's quite relevant. It doesn't have to be about the jhanas. It's just in our daily practice. Anytime you sit down to meditate, is there, A feeling of frustration because things aren't going the way you would like them to go. Well, that means you're striving for something. You're trying to get an experience out of your meditation that you're not getting. And even seeking an experience out of meditation is wrong intention. Meditation is not about an experience. It's sold on that in that way and to some extent. And we project that, oh, this is about getting peaceful or this is about getting Insight, or it's about getting something, right? Well, right away you know that's a problem because it's meditation, which is supposed to be about not getting, about letting go. So if I'm trying to get something, then I'm going the wrong direction. And so it's very typical, you know, you sit down. Oh, I'm going to sit meditate for 20 minutes, and you and you know, after 10 minutes you're like, oh man, my mind just keeps wandering. What's wrong with me? Like God, I, I really, geez, I need to get a better meditation app, you know, or whatever, you know. <laughs> And no, it's just, it's that str- It's like you sit, you do your part, and then the results will be what they will be. You can't control the results. And again, the 12 steps are very applicable here. In the 12 steps, you turn your will in your life over to the care of God. Well, in my practice, I turn my meditation practice over the power of Dharma. I just turn it over to that. I, I'm not responsible for what happens in my meditation beyond what effort I can make. And always that question, what is the right effort? It's a constant question, and it's something that has to be tracked continually when you're meditating. You've got me on one of my hobby horses now.
2: Well, so let me respond. A little bit. I mean, you, you came back to the sixth noble truth, that right effort. And yeah, you know, everything you said up until right about at the end, I just loved. That was actually very useful to me, I think. But when you say meditation isn't about getting someplace, I think the, uh, the right effort says learn how to get into a wholesome state and, you know, whatever it takes, you know, find the effort that gets you in a wholesome state or find the effort that keeps you in a wholesome state or find the effort that keeps you out of unwholesome states or yeah. find the, the effort that gets you out of the unwholesome right. states, um, the, the four, the four different pieces of that. So to me, I read that as being, it is about, we should be, you know, pursuing was the word I said earlier, but the we should find the effort that gets us into a better space without... Yes,
0: but it's the nature of that effort. And the word effort is a problem already in meditation. I taught a retreat recently, and on retreat, effort is like one of the biggest issues. And at a certain point, what I said to the retreatants was... 90% of right effort on this retreat is signing up for the retreat, coming to the retreat, and following the schedule. The other 10% is what you do in terms of like trying to guide your mind back to your breath or trying to be present. But 90% of it, 90% of right effort is that you showed up here tonight. That's my, that's my sense of it in my experience. Because I've tried, <laughs> you know, I've efforted in many ways And what I found is that no matter what I was, thought I was doing, stuff happened in kind of like Angulimat, like it happened. Karma ripens, just the karma of a peaceful meditation. It ripens in a given moment. Not because I'm really trying hard to let go of a thought or I'm really trying hard to be with my breath. It ripens because of all these causes and conditions that allow that to happen. You know? And one piece of that is my effort to be with my breath. But there's a lot of other things, like how long am I sitting there? You know, that's a really big one. How still am I being? What happened right before I meditated? What's going on in my life? What am I planning to do after my meditation? What, you know, and on and on and on. All the stuff that contributes to my mind state right now and And so that to think that i 'm meditating and it 's something that 's separate from all the rest of my life is to live in an illusion like that's that 's one of the reasons people get so frustrated with meditation. they think that somehow meditation is this special thing that 's going to take them out of the world. it puts you into your world, and what it does is it shows you where you are, and if you are in a place of agitation and disturbance, it doesn 't matter how many breaths you count you know it 's just not going to you're not going to get into PT, you know. Uh, it, it, so that, that quality of effort, uh, is just, uh, it's, it's central to the whole thing. And, and there's just only so much you can do. I think, uh, that's, oh, is there, okay, one, one more question, but we, we need to. We need I'll be to fast. Wonderful um, dedications. The thing that struck me while you were telling the original story, was the repetition of taking what is not given. And in light of what we're just talking about right now, I think that's the thing, is that all kinds of striving and effort is taking what's not given. That's a nice way of putting it. That's interesting, yeah. Thank you, I like that. Or it's sort of asking for what's not offered. (laughs) All right, so let's um, thank you, thank you, everybody. Thank you for the questions. Great question. Um, Just I know often people will come up, uh, especially when I'm somewhere like this where people don't know me, and ask me what my name was. So I'm going to tell you again that my name is Kevin Griffin, and I can be found if you Google Kevin Griffin. You'll either get the lead guitar player for Better Than Ezra or me. We we kind of (laughs) compete for the top two spots and. And the fact that I'm a guitar player also confuses the matter, but but you can find me on the internet and all my books and all that. So, and I and I actually teach here the fourth Tuesday of each month. Uh, I was here two days ago, and then the second Friday of each month at Spirit Rock. So I have Dharma and recovery for anybody who's interested in that topic. So we'll uh, do the dedication of merit. This idea that uh, this is another way in which Buddhism sort of suggests not holding on to anything, so any benefit that comes from our practice together is dedicated to to all beings and to this case to a few particular beings, so dedicating merit to Carol for her depression, dedicating merit to a father who is struggling with alcoholism. The George, who turned 80 this year, experiencing physical difficulties, may he find ease. Oh, may all beings be free from depression, may all beings be free from
1: alcoholism. May all beings find ease